There's the old developer joke where if you send an engineer to the grocery store and say, get a carton of milk, and if they have eggs, get 12. The engineer is going to come back with 12 cartons of milk. So Google will do that exact same thing to you. But that's the future of paid traffic is taking our hands off the wheel, getting used to the autonomous driving, and then focusing on the things that we can control, which, by the way, are immense. It's not autopilot. It's not set it and forget it. There's audience and it's all the creative work. It's all the things that a computer can't do. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Kasim Aslam, founder and CEO of Solutions 8. Kasim founded Solutions 8 in 2006, and now it is one of the world's top-ranked Google ad agencies. He is also the traffic coach for DigitalMarketers.com's elite coaching program, and Kasim was hand-selected to help create their new paid traffic certification. He's also the co-host of Perpetual Traffic, one of the top marketing podcasts in the world. Kasim is a go-to person in the area of Google ads and has been recognized by the Arizona Interactive Marketing Association's Tim Award for Person of the Year. He was also named one of the top 50 digital marketing thought leaders in the U.S. by the University of Missouri. Kasim's book, The Seven Critical Principles of Effective Digital Marketing, was featured as one of the top 100 digital marketing books of all time by Book Authority. Kasim has had the honor of being a main stage MC for the Traffic and Conversion Summit, the largest marketing conference in North America, and he speaks regularly at conferences around the globe. Listen in for some great takeaways about Kasim's entrepreneurial journey, and how Google ads could be used to drive traffic and opportunities for your business. Well, everybody, Larry Sprung here, and I have the distinct pleasure of being with Kasim Aslam, founder and CEO of Solutions 8. Thanks for joining us today, Kasim. Larry, thanks for having me. Appreciate you. Yeah, it's awesome. Thanks for taking the time for chatting with us. I think we're going to have a lot of great tidbits and takeaways for our listeners today. But before we start jumping into that, the productive stuff and those tangible takeaways, can you share with everyone who you are and your path? How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, I'm uh, the founder and CEO of Solutions 8. We're the number one ranked Google Ads agency on the planet. And I am an exceptionally adept failure, meaning I'm really good at failing forward. So... I've had a long string of entrepreneurial failures that have all primed me for being a really good paid traffic guy. Because when you run paid traffic, all you're doing is just failing 90% of the time. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's like just an entrepreneurial thing, right? I find that 
if you can't fail forward, you can't be an entrepreneur for very long. I, yeah, I you got to have right? really thick skin. You have to, your comfort with failure. It's a good bedfellow after a while. Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, if you're not failing, you're probably not trying hard enough. There you go. There you go. So how did you get here? What was your background prior to becoming the best Google ad agency on the planet? I started with a company called KPO Global. That was my initial entrepreneurial excursion. And I was trying to build enterprise level software. And speaking of failure, I was in the bank that brought down Lehman Brothers. If you've seen the big short. I have. Okay. So that movie's about a specific bank. They never named the bank. It was First National Bank of Arizona. It was owned by a gentleman, a billionaire out of North Dakota. I was building software for them. I was in the bank when the FDIC pulled in in their big black SUVs and started kicking down doors. <laughs> and that was the beginning of my first entrepreneurial downfall. And my whole business ended up being tanked, you know, kind of on the heels of that. And what's funny about it is I hated that little business. <laughs> it, you know, it made a ton of money, which was great, but it was software's boring and sterile and it's computers talking to computers and long sales cycles, just really tedious. And so even though I didn't know it at the time, it's the best thing that ever happened to me because I started trolling Craigslist for web work just to eat. And those were pretty lean years, but it led me to building websites for people, which led me to marketing, which led me to Google ads, each of which I've failed at in sequence. <laughs> but landing on Google Ads, I seem to be doing pretty well so far. So fingers crossed that trend continues. Yeah. So listen, I guess one door closes and another one opens. And as my mom used to say, everything's meant to be because had that not happened to the bank Arizona, who knows, right? Who knows? Yeah, that's exactly right. So how did you come to find success? I mean, with Google Ads, you mentioned earlier a lot of failure, but obviously being the number one agency on the planet, there has to be some success behind that. So how'd you come across that? Yeah, it was so I had what was called a full funnel agency. So we were doing everything SEO, web, PPC, and I brought in a gentleman to come work with me who's now my business partner. And he's the very first one to identify. He goes, you know, everybody who's successful with this long term is successful with Google Ads first. And there was a reason for that, which is honestly, it's, it's not rocket science. Like if I can take you and throw you in the Coliseum with all of your competitors and you come out alive, that means you have a viable business. You're not charging too much money. You actually have a sales team that knows how to answer the phone, et cetera. So we started using Google ads as the barrier to entry. I wouldn't work with you as a marketing agency unless we ran Google ads first and we saw that you were successful, which is a pretty good model. But the other thing on the heels of that was all the other services that we were offering and providing, they weren't as effective. So we got really good at the Google thing. And again, it was my business partner's decision. He said, hey, we should niche down into Google. And I was dragged along kicking and screaming, thinking like, oh, you know, fear of missing out. I don't want to be myopic. I don't want to just be a one-trick pony, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And nothing has ever scaled faster once we really niche down into a single service offering. So if there is a young entrepreneur listening, I can tell you, I was given that advice to a point of being annoyed by it. You got to find your niche, you got to find your niche, got to find your niche. And I ignored it and I ignored it for almost a decade at my peril. And then as soon as I niched down, bam, it was explosive. That's a, a great piece of advice for sure, because uh, it really attracts the people that you want to work with and repels those people that don't necessarily fit into what your model is by creating that niche environment, right? Yep. That's exactly right. So what is your best advice for those that are looking to create a digital marketing strategy? I imagine what you're saying from what you just said earlier, that starts with the Google ads, but how do they go about putting that together? And what should that look like and feel like if I'm an entrepreneur or a business owner that I want to start working down this digital marketing strategy path? Yeah, it depends on the business. Not all businesses are, are well-primed for Google ads. 
You know, I don't take residential realtors as clients, for instance. It's far too competitive, far too incestuous. Everybody with a real estate license goes straight to Google and plugs in their credit card, very little management. And you're going against like OfferPad and Zillow and these massive VC-backed companies. So that's an industry that is snake eating its own tail. And I'm picking on them out of intention because they're an easy target, but there's a ton of industries like that. General dentistry is really tough. If I have a general dentist come, we'll look at it and we'll run the numbers. But most geographic regions, unless you're doing like implants, Invisalign, all on four, you're going to have a tough time as a dentist. So the first step for anybody is a viability study. Can you compete in this ecosystem? I had a client who was selling life insurance. That's all he sold, life insurance. And when we were running ads for life insurance, the cost per click was more than he could make on a policy per click. (laughs) And when we dug into it, it's because all these other big insurance carriers, they use life insurance as a loss leader. Because I know if I get your life insurance, I'm going to get your umbrella and your home and your auto. And he had an inadequate business model when compared to the larger ecosystem. So it's a long, hard look at what you're doing, who else is doing what you're doing, and whether or not you can compete with those people. And bigger isn't better. Just because there's a big 500-pound gorilla in the, in the room doesn't, 5,000-pound gorilla in the room doesn't mean that you need to be scared off. Oftentimes, that's the value proposition standalone. Oh, I'm smaller. I actually care about you. But you have to make sure you have a unique value proposition. And you have to make sure that you can compete in the ecosystem. If somebody else has a better monetization model than you do, you're going to have a really tough time getting in front of customers because they can spend way more money loving on those people. Right. So does that insurance person that you mentioned earlier, right, who sells insurance, that's his value proposition. Does he then go back and rethink his business strategy in terms of what he's really doing in order to fit into that marketing strategy? Or he just kind of says, you know what, this is not for me and goes on his merry way and figures out another way to kind of generate new business? Yes, to both. So you can go and figure, you know, new products, new Ascension model, or... If you're really bullish about what it is that you're doing and you're offering, now you just need to go find the non-commoditized ecosystem because Google's heavily commoditized. Google, all paid traffic channels are heavily commoditized. People have a value to them inside of these traffic channels. And I know that sounds really heartless, but it's true. It's this particular person in this particular socioeconomic status with this particular device on this day is worth X and I have to pay X in order to get in front of that person. And so my life insurance guy couldn't pay X. He couldn't afford it. So now he needs to go find ways to lift himself out and above that ecosystem. And I'll tell you, the number one way to do that is what you're doing here now today. It's community building. This podcast that you're doing, you're building a community. You're providing value. You're giving up front. And you're doing it in a way that doesn't force you to compete against 50 other people in a microsecond when somebody's attention is available and accessible. So if I were selling life insurance and I wanted to continue selling life insurance, I didn't want any other products. I would go, and it doesn't have to be a podcast, right? It can be a YouTube channel or an Instagram profile or Twitter profile, whatever. Differentiator. Yeah. And go where your customer is too. If your customer is not on Twitter, don't invest in Twitter. You know, everybody thinks they need to be everywhere. You don't need to be ubiquitous. I have one social channel that I really cultivate. It's YouTube because my customers on YouTube, they want to know how to do stuff. Well, I guess that's a lie. We've got a podcast too. That's not my podcast. I'm just (laughs) just the mouth. So go where your customer is and then give, 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 give and build a community. And now you don't have to worry about paying for traffic. Yeah. I mean, listen, my industry is highly competitive and you cannot, for us to outbid those institutions that have millions, if not billions of marketing dollars are very difficult. So like you said, we have to find other ways to stand out from the crowd in order to attract that traffic. It's tough, but it can be done, like you said, right? 
So what do entrepreneurs need to understand about customer acquisition costs? You alluded to it earlier in terms of that insurance person, and I don't mean to pick on them, but I think it's a really good and relevant example, right? You're telling us that for him to acquire a client or a customer through Google ads was going to essentially cost him more than he's going to make on the policy. So he's got to either have an ability to sell a lot of policies to that individual or get a lot of referrals otherwise rethink the strategy overall. So if I'm an entrepreneur, I want to start entering this space. What are the top things I need to know about that customer acquisition cost? That's a great question. You have to pay attention to the lifetime value of your customer. This is a fight that I get into with, I'd say, 20% of my clients. 20% of my clients will, let's say an e-commerce client is a really good example because it's easy for me to see what they make. So you sell products online, you sell a type of consumable. We'll use makeup as an example. That's the first one that comes to mind. If I'm selling makeup for you, the amount of money that Google tells me I make you will not be break-even, generally speaking. So you paid for visibility, however much visibility we had to acquire in order for somebody to make a purchase. That person made a purchase. The amount you spent on the visibility and the amount you made on purchase, it oftentimes are going to be pretty disparate. So you're going to spend way more acquiring a customer than that customer is worth to you the first time. You have to pay attention to, well, it's makeup, right? They're going to come back a week, a month, a year later. And hopefully, if you have a good product, that's going to be a customer that's with you long-term. What is the lifetime value of your customer? My business is a good example of this. I'm not in the black for the first 90 days on a new client. If a client cancels within day 89 or before, I've lost money. So, But I know that my average retention is 14 months. So we're going to lose some money on some clients. We're going to make some money on clients too. But if that click to purchase, if you get too simplistic with the way that you're tracking your return on investment, you're not going to be able to play in this ecosystem because everybody else, the real players, the people that know what they're doing, they're banking on lifetime value. They're banking on LTV. So you have to know your numbers and you have to know what a customer is really worth to you. Otherwise, you're not going to know what you can pay for that customer. Sounds like I'm on Shark Tank. Know your numbers. (laughs) Know your numbers. That's right. So you said something interesting about your business, right? And if we could just turn to that for a minute, you said the average life of a customer for you is about 14 months, right? So that's, in my view, it's not a long term for we're looking to work with clients for generations. In some cases, we're working the second and third generations. So clearly, based upon that kind of time horizon versus 14 months, Very different. So why is it only around 14 months? Is it that the clients are getting what they need at that point or too much? They have to dial back. What's the thought process there? It's a multivariant issue. I think the first one and maybe the most important is the fact that we've had explosive growth over the last 18 months. Two years ago, I had what, 14 employees, 15 employees. Today, I have 70. And so a lot of my growth has been in the last 18 months. And so some of this is just a sample size issue where we haven't been around long enough to see what long-term is going to look like for a lot of our recent client acquisition. But take that aside, because I've been in business for 15 years. The average agency retention is four to six months. That's a HubSpot statistic. So HubSpot, who has the most, I think, the best data on agencies puts out these benchmark reports every year. And agencies uh, tend to keep clients from four to six months. So we're well over industry average by a multiple, which I'm pretty proud of. The other issue we run into, though, is it's not evergreen. I'm going to optimize your campaign until it doesn't need optimization anymore. And then I'm going to come in and say, Larry, you don't really need me to look at this every day. You need somebody looking at it once a week, once a month, or you'd be better. Or, and this happens far more often than I'd care to share, it goes so well, the client needs to bring it in-house. Now <laughs> it's like, hey, we need an FTE. Somebody needs to be on this 24-7, 365. We're going to go spend, you know, and we can still maintain an engagement. Oftentimes that turns into a consultancy. Or, and then this is maybe what I'm... <laughs> What I should have started with, 50% of all Google Ads campaigns fail in the first 90 days, half. So that 14 months, 
it factors in a massive atrophy in the very beginning because there's no guarantee that this works. And that's how we sell this thing. I'm like, look, I'm going to test. I'm going to test your organic ecosystem and your offer against the market. And maybe it performs, maybe it doesn't. And so we lose a ton of clients within that 90 day period because everybody comes to the table knowing I'm going to go spend your money for you. I'm just going to do it more efficiently and we're going to figure out whether or not this is something that can work. And oftentimes when it doesn't work, I love it when people are like, oh, I'm going to go test Google. And I'm like, Google works, I promise you. I, I can get in front of a viable prospect. We're going to go test your messaging, your offer, your pricing, your sales team. I can't tell you, Larry, how many times I have customers come to me and say, oh, Google's not working. And then I pull up call tracking metrics, which is the tool that we use in order to track and report all the phone calls. And I'm like, really? Because you don't answer your phone. One of our largest clients, actually, a massive construction company. They're in pretty much every major city in the Midwest. And I was on the phone with the CFO about to get fired. And I said, if you don't mind, just hang tight. I pull up call tracking metrics and we start listening to the calls together. 30% of the calls went unanswered. 30%, which is insane. Crazy. Crazy. And of the calls that were answered, we were looking at like five and six minute hold times. And I was like, Google's working. We're bringing the people to you. I'm dropping gold down at your, your front door and you're just not opening the door. And when they corrected that, and to their bet, you know, to their credit, they moved faster than any entity I've ever seen move and fixing that. And then now we're just pouring gas on a fire. Yeah. So there's a lot of different aspects there. And I think a lot of it has to do with probably, like you said, unrealistic expectations, perhaps people not doing what they're saying they're going to do. I'll tell you, we just kind of started testing out a little bit with regard to Google ads. And it's funny that you bring up the call tracking and whatnot, because that I was unaware of that it actually recorded those calls. It was amazing. And we recognized that after a short period of time. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of spooky that the person clicks through and then you got a recording of the whole conversation right there for you. I could see how it's helpful and it's interesting at the same time. So we've seen a lot of different changes in the digital marketplace, even the last year or so. What has been the biggest challenges that you've seen there You know, over the last couple of years? The privacy first initiatives, which if you're not familiar with those as you're listening, there's the European Union, I think was the first large sweeping move. And they, they rolled out something called GDPR, right? which it blinded us in a lot of ways as to what we were allowed to track and how we were allowed to track that. Now, I don't do a lot of business in Europe, so that was fine. But then the state of California did the same thing. And then more interesting beyond the municipal bodies was what private entities started doing. Apple rolled out something called the iOS 14 update, which was a freaking masterstroke of statecraft. <laughs> it was brilliant. They single-handedly annihilated Facebook. Facebook ads pre-iOS, it was minting money and had been for decades. That's where all the educators went. It's where all the, the you know, the crack marketers, the, it was unbelievable what you could do instead of Facebook yep. and how quickly and easily you could get customers. And then Apple rolled out this update saying, oh, you can't track, you can't see without somebody's permission. And what's interesting about the permission-based tracking was if you read the way that Apple writes the permission request, it's insane. It's like, who would ever <laughs> say yes to this? Now, I'm not telling you that Facebook's no longer viable, but what I'm telling you is Facebook of today isn't Facebook of two years ago. Right. It's an entirely different system and it has to be treated differently. It actually has to be treated a lot, a lot like television. Television is a great marketing mechanism, but it's not as granular as Facebook used to be. And it's only getting worse. Android's rolling out its own version of the iOS update. We're, we're moving towards far less visibility. And so in order to adjust to this, the single most important thing a business can do, and here's what's sad about this, man, is I'm, I'm about to drop a pearl of wisdom that's not even mine. I stole it from somebody else. 
But 95% of all businesses will not do this because it's hard. It's not even difficult. It's not technically difficult. It's tedious. And so I want to preface, and I know this is annoying. I'm a marketer, though. You you forgive me, Larry. That's okay. I want to preface my little tidbit with, if you're listening to this and you can commit to doing this, 95, maybe more, 95% of your competition is not going to do this. And this is going to set your business apart by at least two standard deviations. Collecting first-party data. The vast majority of businesses are not collecting first-party data, and they're not doing it because they didn't have to, because in the past, the advertising networks were doing it for them. So making sure that you have the ability to cookie a user who comes to your site. And first-party cookies, by the way, are fine. Everybody thinks cookies are dead. They're not. Third-party cookies are dead. First-party cookies are fine. And hopefully, we'll continue to be outside of, you know, maybe some, what would you say, like browsers that are on the purposes of that rule. Right. Using first-party cookies, start tracking the day that you think is most important. What are your most important pages? What media? What videos? What sessions? And as soon as a user converts, append that data to that conversion so that you can actually capture it inside your CRM. That's first-party data. If you have that data, and and I have some case studies that are, I think, pretty amazing, you can do so much with it. So the iOS 14 update, the thing that killed Facebook, we were able to fix Facebook. We were able to fix Facebook with first-party data. We ported first-party data back into Facebook, and bam, it was at 80% capacity, 80% of where it was, which 80% doesn't sound sexy until you realize everybody else is operating off of like 30%. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So capturing first-party data long-term is going to be one of the most important things a business can do. That's amazing. And so how has Google implemented any major privacy changes as well through this process that's kind of hindered your abilities or that's where you're operating is in this first party data world, which is allowing you to do what you need to do? It's funny, man. Google <laughs> Google played this so well. I'm not a Google show, by the way. I don't trust them at all. My course is called You versus Google. Like, <laughs> Let's just say that your best interests are not in their heart. Right. It's in your pocket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Google was way more strategic than Facebook was. Google's the bigger threat. If you think about what Google knows, Google's the most ubiquitous thing on the internet. And I do this talk where if anybody's ever heard me, they've heard this, so forgive the repetition, but everybody thinks that Google's just a search engine. And they are that, of course, the largest search engine on the planet, but they're also Google Analytics, which means they're on that 99% of all front-facing websites. And you start thinking about that, what that means. They know who's in Narcotics Anonymous, who's about to get a divorce, who's about to declare bankruptcy. They know what kind of adult material you like. Mm -hmm. Google knows every... In April of 2015, Google told a woman she was pregnant before she knew based solely off of her search and communication patterns. Right. And that was seven years ago. Think about the speed at which machine learning moves. Google has 72 million demographic and psychographic profiling factors compared to Facebook's 55,000. Now, if you think about that, there hasn't been... And there have been congressional hearings now, but like nobody's carted the Google guys up in front of Congress the way they carted Zuckerberg in front of Congress. There was, you know, the Cambridge Analytica scandal with Facebook. Facebook showed its hand and everybody freaked out. Um, And so Facebook's the one that took all the privacy bullets. Google is, I think, the biggest privacy threat publicly accessible outside of what somebody might be doing, you know, behind the scenes. And yet, for whatever reason, they've done a really good job flying below the radar. Interesting. One of the things you mentioned earlier is your presence on YouTube, right? So how should businesses decide, or is there a decision between spending on Google ads versus YouTube ads, or are they completely different animals? No, it's interesting. Google's ruling them effective. Now, I have friends that would disagree with my answer right now, just so you know, and it's really worth listening to them too, because they're really sharp people. A couple come to mind. Tom Breeze, world authority in the space of YouTube. Go look up Tom if you don't know him. Super sharp guy. Alric Heck, world authority in the space of YouTube. Everybody knows Alric if you've done any YouTube advertising at all. 
they're both going to disagree with the statement that I'm about to make. YouTube is not independent of Google any longer. Google just rolled out a new product called Performance Max. And when you go run YouTube ads, you do it inside of the Google Ads dashboard. Right. You know, they're effectively the same network. But a lot of people treat them as though they're different and separate. And I used to. But what Google's doing now is they're rolling all their inventory into a single advertising mechanism. And so you can give Google your ads, give Google your audience, give Google your goals. And then Google goes, great, got it from here. And then Google utilizes its entire inventory, which is search, discovery, display, shopping, and YouTube, etc. And it goes and it gets your customer for you. And you don't have to worry about how to prioritize placements or what videos you're looking at. Google figures that out for you. And I would strongly recommend trusting the trillion dollar machine learning AI mechanism because <laughs> you're not going to be able to outsmart it or outthink it. So I don't think there's any difference any longer. I think all of Google's inventory should be treated, well, it, not treated the same. They should be treated differently, but the, the machine's going to take care of that for you. So it's no longer a concern. Right. They know what's going on. So why should we try to take the guess, right? Yeah, don't try gonna... to outsmart. Yeah. Yeah. Don't try to outsmart the machines, I guess, so to speak. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> so listen, the events over the last couple of years with the pandemic and whatnot has really caused many businesses to pivot. What did you and your company need to do during that time period in order to keep yourself and the brand relevant? Was the pandemic something that impacted you significantly or because everybody was kind of driven online, it was almost business as usual or maybe even more business than usual because of that? It definitely wasn't business as usual. I hate to say this because it makes me sound predatory and I didn't know this was going to happen, but the pandemic was the single best thing that's ever happened in my business ever. And Google has a data point on that. COVID drove 70% more online consumer purchases. Right. 70%. I mean, that's an unbelievable, untenable number. It's hard to, we're growing at like three to 5% per year and all of a sudden COVID popped online purchases by 70%. It exploded my business. It exploded a lot of online e-com data driven, like, you know, a lot of us kind of are still feeling that COVID wave. And I don't think that's going anywhere. I think we're actually kind of the supply chain issue that you deal with like physical businesses. There's a supply chain issue with the digital online businesses too, because all of this traffic landed so quickly, we weren't able to adjust. And so now all the real elegant adjustments, inventions are are going to be, I think, forthcoming. So the next three, five years, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be so much fun to watch. So let's talk about that. What do you think the future of paid traffic is going to look like? It's algorithmic. So the analogy I used to give people, running paid traffic used to be driving a race car. You're going 250 miles down the road and you have to make all these decisions in a microsecond and you you know you have your little dashboard there in front of you and everything that you can monitor and you just had to be really smart at what you're doing. And the smarter you were, the better you at it. Now it's interstellar space travel at the speed of light. <laughs> you don't get to drive the spaceship when you're moving at the speed of light, right? If you try to steer the spaceship when you're moving at the speed of light, you will legit die for all the reasons that I don't understand because I don't know anything about the speed of light. So instead, you let the computers drive the spaceship and you serve the computers. And I know that sounds really weird, like we're serving our overlords, but that's exactly what it is. You give the computer what it needs in order to be effective, and then the computer goes off and and brings you back whatever it is that you asked for. It's like a hunting dog. And you got to be real careful about what you ask for, because sometimes, you know, there's the old developer joke where if you send an engineer to the grocery store and say, get a carton of milk, and if they have eggs, get 12. The engineer is going to come back with 12 cartons of milk. milk. (laughs) Yeah. So Google will do that exact same thing to you. But but that's the future of paid traffic is taking our hands off the wheel, getting used to the autonomous driving, and then focusing on the things that we can control, which by the way, are immense. It's not autopilot. It's not set it and forget it. There's audience and it's all the creative work. It's all the things that a computer can't do. Which is where you and Solutions 8 come in. That's exactly, that was a perfect segue, Larry. Thank you so much. Here's the truth. You don't need me. 
everybody listening, as soon as conversion tracking is set up, the technical implementation is tough. So, you know, go pay somebody to do that. As soon as that's done, you can do this yourself for sure. Go watch some of my YouTube videos. You can do it yourself. Here's my point. You won't want to. The amount of time, effort, and energy it's going to take you to manage these damn things, I promise you I'm going to be able to do it better and more efficiently. No matter what your hourly billable is, you will pay me less than it will cost you to manage all those campaigns. And not just me. There's a ton of really good, really reputable paid traffic managers out there. Go get somebody. I don't manage my own money, right? Like, I'm not an idiot. I don't do my own dentistry either. Like, go get somebody who knows what the hell they're doing and pay them to do it. Well, you just have to make sure once you get them paid and you get them to do it, that your staff and you are actually picking up the phone and delivering a great experience to those people that you've now driven to your doorstep, right? That's exactly right. That's really where you have to really implement that client experience to make sure that you're now, you did your job, you got them to the door, now we have to open it up and bring them in and make them feel comfortable and stay for a while, right? Well said. So you said earlier, you know, we talked about the privacy first initiatives and some of those things, the first party cookies is something that we should all be thinking about and being putting ourselves ahead. Are there other things that if I'm a small business owner or an entrepreneur that I need to know about these privacy first initiatives or that's pretty much it? I wouldn't let them scare you because depending on your size, you're probably flying under the radar for now. GDPR, the California legislation, they all have thresholds that you have to meet in terms of size and or data usage. And so you're safe from legislation, which is a real danger. It's coming. I'm terrified of the ambulance chasers because I don't know what's going to happen then. As soon as the legislation gets a little broader, we're all in trouble. And I'll give you one really specific. Usually California tends to uh, lead these initiatives, right? And then it starts filtering down to more states. And then until it's something that's going to be federally mandated, I would imagine at some point. You're exactly right. There's an analogy I like to draw, which is web accessibility. There's something called WCAG compliance from the Americans with Disabilities Act. ADA, yeah. ADA compliance. Technically, every website on the planet should be ADA compliant. 98% of websites are not ADA compliant. It hasn't been an issue up until about 2019, 2020. And then the ambulance chasers got involved and they started suing and they started from the top. So they were suing like Domino's Pizza and Wells Fargo and Kim Kardashian and, you know, like people with a ton of traffic to their website. And now it's trickling down. And I'm seeing small companies, small organizations getting nailed for not being ADA compliant. I think that the privacy first stuff, if you're non-compliant from a privacy perspective, you'll start seeing shots fired at some of the the larger game. And that's when you should start paying attention. And as soon as the animal that's right, that's a little bit bigger than you starts getting hunted, that's when you want to start, you know, go Alamo up. Right. A hundred percent. I've know some businesses that have gotten those letters from the ADA with regard to their websites and whatnot. And it looks like this is probably going to follow a similar path at some point, but good advice. So what's up next for you, Kasim? What's the next big thing on the horizon? Digital Marketer released the paid traffic certification, which was the first update in quite a few years. And the original was great, by the way. It was Molly Pittman, who's been a friend and mentor of mine. She's amazing, super brilliant. But they had us do it. They had us do the paid traffic training, which I was super flattered by. It was very full circle for me. So I'm really happy about that, proud about it. I can't wait to see how it goes, like what the public reception is. And then other than that, man, I just roll with the punches. I feel like Neo from The Matrix. Like they keep shooting at me and I keep like dodging it. And sooner or later, one's going to hit. But I'm excited to see what happens. Google just rolled out a new campaign type called Performance Max that I alluded to earlier. It's the single biggest change in the Google ecosystem. 
It'll be the single biggest paradigm shift in online marketing history. It's unbelievable what it's capable of. I'm excited to jump on that wave and ride it for as long and hard as I can. Sounds great. I'm looking forward to watching where that wave takes you. So listen, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. And we end every show asking each of our guests the same question, because this is the Midland Money Mindset. What did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? My children have, we just bought a house. And right off of my boy's room is this, they call it a kid cave. It's like a smaller room with its own separate entry. And when we bought the house, I blocked the room with the big armoire. So they don't know the room exists. And (laughs) up until this call, and then also after this call, I've been working on a bookshelf that I'm building that has a a tricked out back. And I'm going to go lob this bookshelf right in front of this room. And like the Chronicles of Narnia, there's going to be a secret entrance to this kid cave. And I'm not going to tell them that it's there. So they're going to just through the course of their childhood at some point discover this secret door into this secret room. And I'm super excited about it. So that's what brought me joy. And the reason I think it put me in the right mindset is because at the end of the day, that's kind of all that matters, right? Like it's the little guys and what we're doing at home and our family. I agree. But listen, you got to understand my little guys are bigger guys now. They're 15, (laughs) soon to be 16, soon to be 19. And the only suggestion I would have for you, and I'm sure you've heard this, they grow up very quickly. Yeah. Make sure that door is big enough so that if they don't find it for a few years, they could still get in and have a good time. Yeah, that's good advice. (laughs) You know, you might want to point it out to them at some point so you can get the joy of their facial expressions when they figure it out. Or maybe put a camera up, you know, on that uh, that area. My wife had that. So you don't miss that. You don't miss that first. You don't want to miss that first reaction. That's for sure. You know, Well, the question is, is, are they going to tell us when they find it? It's so like, they're going to find this thing, and now are they going to keep to themselves? Because me and my little brother, I can tell you, we would not have told my mom if we found something <laughs> in the house. But I'm excited to see that, too. It'll give me a little bit of, you know, they're little. They're five and seven, or they're about to turn five and seven here in April. So it'll give me a little insight into their personality. Listen, it goes by in a blink. My kids were, like, born yesterday, in my yeah. view. It's, like, crazy, and now they're both out of the house. But that's a whole different story. So, listen, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, Kasim. If people want to find you or find Solutions 8. We're going to have that information in the show notes, but what's the easiest place for them to find you? Uh, Website, sol8.com, sol8.com. I shoot one YouTube video a day. So if you want to hit me up on YouTube, that's the best. You know, if you want to learn more about Google Ads, we give it all away. Give it all away. There's no paywall. I'm not going to try to sell you anything. I go up there, I teach everybody everything that we learn, and my hope is that they become a customer someday. Awesome. I love it. Thank you for sharing. We've definitely gotten some great tangible takeaways today. Thank you for those, and make it a great day. You too, Larry. Appreciate you. I want to thank Kasim Aslam for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Kasim and his team have risen to be one of the top Google ad agencies in the world, and this has not been by accident, but rather some unbelievably hard work and commitment. I'm sure you found some great takeaways that you can implement today, as I know I did, and I look forward to seeing the results. Kasim and Solutions 8 can be found across all social media platforms, and all the contact information needed to find them can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. 
You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.